Good morning. I like the, uh, I like the little videos because it's like a, an immediate cue that you're supposed to get in your seat. Um, okay, so some of you already know exactly where I'm going with this, but if you don't, I want to include you in this cultural phenomenon. Um, so how many of you grew up reading or hearing these books read to you as a kid? A lot of people. All right. I want you to imagine in your minds how the name of this family of bears is spelled. Okay. Do you have it in your mind? All right. Now, can we go to the next slide? Oh, Berenstain Bears. Okay. How many of you knew? I mean, some of you already knew because a couple of people saw that we were talking about Berenstain Bears and they're like, I already know what you're going to do. Um, okay. So about three years ago, this was uh, there was an uproar on the internet because like thousands of people realized that they had completely misremembered how to spell Bernstein Bears. And it raised all of these questions about how that could possibly happen, including theories about a parallel universe that we might be living in. <laughs> so this phenomenon where we have collective misremembrance is called the Mandela Effect. And it highlights just how bad we are at recalling facts and frankly, perceiving our own reality. So this week, as we look at our scripture, Stephen presents a very different view of Jewish history to the Sadducees and Pharisees in the context of the Sanhedrin. And it's a story that's very different from what they were telling themselves about their own history. And the consequences are explosive and tragic. And there's powerful truth here for us because the stories that we all tell ourselves have similarly explosive and tragic consequences. So, good morning. Uh, I'm pleased that you could join us on this beautiful Sunday uh, with flash flood warnings probably buzzing your phone like they're buzzing mine. Uh, if you haven't heard, we are on flood watch basically all day today, so be safe. Uh, my name is Donnie Epp. I'm a member of the teaching team. Uh, the teaching team is a group that meets weekly to discuss the lesson that we're ultimately going to deliver um, on Sunday. And uh, I'm very grateful for this group because they keep people like me in bounds in terms of what we share. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure there's always a little bit of cringing though when I, when I get up here, like what, what is he actually going to say? Um, but this, this morning in, in particular, I'm very aware of my own imperfection on a daily basis. And so I want to encourage you to take everything that I say and measure it against what you study and your own discernment and your own experience and don't take my word for it. And I think the only comfort that I get in getting up here on a Sunday morning is understanding that we don't come here because we all have it perfect. We all come here because we are imperfect and needing grace. So thank you for joining me in that. So whether you're here uh, listening on the podcast or if you're on Facebook Live, um, thank you for joining us. Uh, and if you would, just uh, bow and briefly uh, pray with me. Lord, Open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as we read scripture and as we explore your story, that we may hear with fresh ears and see with fresh eyes what you have for us today. Amen. So as a church, we are making our way through the book of Acts, and uh, here we see chronicled the history of the early church directly following uh, Jesus' death. And as we've been making our way through the story, we've been asking ourselves two kind of filter questions. What is Acts asking us, and what are we asking Acts? 
And I had to practice saying that four times fast to make sure that I didn't screw it up this morning. Last week, uh, we hit a really important inflection point in the history of the church. There is conflict inside this nascent community where Hellenists, and these are Greek-speaking Jews, feel disadvantaged in the distribution of food as a part of their kind of local food pantry. And so the way that the apostles respond to this is by actually taking uh, a group of men out of that community and establishing them as deacons in the church um, to manage the food pantry. So um, that's, that's kind of a radical decision for them to do that. They actually include the Hellenistic Jews in this process. And one of these proto-deacons is uniquely described in our scripture last week as a man full of grace and power. And his name is Stephen. And in addition to his assigned role in distributing food rations, uh, he really takes it above and beyond. Stephen might have been an overachiever. Uh, He begins to engage the local synagogue in gospel discourse. So he goes to the synagogue and he starts talking to them about Jesus. And it's his preaching, not his service, that ultimately results in his death. And with this, Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr. And that's kind of what we see in our scripture here. And I love this painting of Stephen, by the way. I, had, I, I looked at hundreds this week looking for the right images, and, and his countenance here, I think, perfectly captures what we see in today's scripture. Um, I think we often look at this story and we skip Stephen's final words, which are numerous, uh, and we, we skip immediately to his death. And I think because in the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves, our lives are eminently sacred. But we don't see that from Stephen in the scripture. Instead, we see repeated references to his countenance. It says, he was brimming with God's grace and energy, having a face like an angel, and praying for the forgiveness of his murderers, even as they pelt him to death with stones. And so it begs the question, why is Stephen okay? Why is he okay? And what we find is that he is living in a completely different story than everyone else. So let's explore this a little bit as we dig into the scripture, and I'll call out a few things as we go, Um, and I want to give you a quick disclaimer. We have almost 70 verses to cover this morning, and so I'm going to sort of speed read through these, so apologies in advance, but I I feel like it's important for us to actually look at the scripture that we're dealing with today as we go through this. So um, get your brains ready. All right, so uh, we're in Acts 6, uh, 8 through uh, basically all of chapter 7. So Stephen, brimming with God's grace and energy, was doing wonderful things among the people, unmistakable signs that God was among them. But then some of the men from the meeting place, whose membership was made up of freed slaves, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others from Cilicia and Asia, went up against him, trying to argue him down. But they were no match for his wisdom and spirit when he spoke. So in secret, they bribed men to lie, We heard him cursing Moses and God. And that stirred up the people, the religious leaders and the religion scholars. They grabbed Stephen and took him before the high council. This is the Sanhedrin. They put forward their bribed witnesses to testify. This man talks nonstop against this holy place and against God's law. We even heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth would tear this place down and throw out all the customs that Moses gave us. So we see here that Stephen is filled with grace and power, and he's winning these debates in the synagogue. The men referenced here that are accusing him 
were also called freedmen, and you'll see this in other, other translations. They're called freedmen, and their synagogue was primarily comprised of former slaves. They had come out of slavery and organized in this synagogue. And there's some irony here that the people who had been freed from physical slavery were still bound in their hearts and minds. So from the context that John shared last week, I want to note here that the high council, it represents, when, we, when it says high council, it's talking about the Sanhedrin. And this is a group comprised of both Hellenistic Jews, Sadducees, and the more traditional folks, the Pharisees. And they, they, they join together in this council. And we see this dynamic play out throughout the rest of the New Testament, but I, I just wanted to make that point that this is all of them together in one council. And they were the ruling Jewish, Jewish council. They made a lot of the laws and, and the decisions about what should happen in the community. So let's keep reading. As all those who sat on the high council looked at Stephen, they found they couldn't take their eyes off him. His face was like the face of an angel. And then the chief priest, and this is most likely Caiaphas, the same guy who who would have heard Jesus. Then the chief priest said, what do you have to say for yourself? So he gets an opportunity here to speak. So Stephen's detractors, these men who had been paid um, to accuse him of, of these, these false accusations. They were accusing him of blasphemy in four areas. And each individually were potentially punishable by death. The first is blasphemy against God. When Jesus says that Jesus is God, that's blasphemy against God in their framework. Also against Moses, because he says that Jesus is greater than Moses. He's also blaspheming their law and customs by saying that Jesus is greater than the law and customs. And then finally, he's blaspheming the holy place, the temple. And he's saying that Jesus is greater than the temple. And so keep those things in mind. And I'll, I'll make a couple of call outs as we go through this gigantic message that Stephen kind of rips into. And he doesn't, he doesn't uh, immediately defend himself. He, he, he launches into this context of this history of the, of the Jewish nation. And he... And he he kind of attacks these sacred cows. And these are the biggest sacred cows that these people have. This is, I was trying to think of an equivalent, and, and this is kind of a, a cheap imitation, but it's like an American saying that they don't believe in the Constitution and we should burn down the White House. But like times a thousand in their context. So we have to understand here also that the Sanhedrin represents the most patriotic and zealous group in this community. They're proud of their history, and they believe that they are uniquely qualified, that they are, they are gifted with the authority and empowered to stand on the shoulders of their forefathers, of their founding fathers, in interpreting their history, setting standards of behavior, and governing accordingly. They know that they're the, they're the guys. They do that. So let's read Stephen's response. So this is now Stephen speaking. Uh, in response to these accusations when they say, is this true? So Stephen replied, friends, fathers, and brothers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was still in Mesopotamia before the move to Haran and told him, leave your country and family and go to the land I'll show you. So he left the country of the Chaldees and moved to Haran. And after the death of his father, he immigrated to this country where you now live. But God gave him nothing, not so much as a foothold. He did promise to give the country to him and his son later on, even though Abraham had no son at the time. God let him know that his offspring would move to an alien country where they would be enslaved and brutalized for 400 years. But, God said, I will step in and take care of those slaveholders and bring my people out so they can worship me in this place. So Stephen's talking about the ground that they are standing on at this moment. 
But the point that he's making is that God moves Abraham all over the place and doesn't establish him in the temple at this point. And God goes with him. There's no temple, there's no law, there's no Moses. God is not confined to a place or a time or our construct of those things. Stephen continues, Then he made a covenant with him and signed it in Abraham's flesh by circumcision. When Abraham had his son Isaac, within eight days he reproduced the sign of circumcision in him. Isaac became father of Jacob, and Jacob father of twelve fathers, each faithfully passing on the covenant sign. But then these fathers, burning up with jealousy, sent Joseph off to Egypt as a slave. So Jacob has these 12 sons. You guys know the story of Joseph and the colored coat and and the jealousy of his brothers. Those brothers are the founding fathers of Israel. And uh, And so Stephen, kind of, it's a little jab in the eye here to say, your founding fathers didn't even recognize their deliverer, which was Joseph. God was right there with him, though. He not only rescued him from all his troubles, but brought him to the attention of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He was so impressed with Joseph that they put him in charge of the whole country, including his own personal affairs. Later, a famine descended on that entire region, stretching from Egypt to Canaan, bringing terrific hardship. Our hungry fathers looked high and low for food, but the cupboard was bare. So God goes with Joseph, even as he is rejected by his own people, who believe that they are empowered as authority figures. Even as he is rejected by those people, God goes with Joseph. And again, we see God is not confined to a holy space. No temple. Jacob heard that there was food in Egypt, and he sent our fathers. He continues to use this this kind of terminology. He sent our fathers to scout it out. Having confirmed the report, they went back to Egypt a second time to get food. And on that visit... Joseph revealed his true identity to his brothers and introduced the Jacob family to Pharaoh. Israel's founding fathers not only rejected Joseph, when they finally got to see Joseph again, they didn't even recognize him. So you're going to start to see a pattern here. You reject the deliverer. You don't recognize the deliverer. Then Joseph, uh, oh, yeah, then Joseph sent for his father Jacob and everyone else in the family, 75 in all. That's how the Jacob family got to Egypt. But then Jacob died. And our fathers after him. And they were taken to Shechem and buried in the tomb for which Abraham paid a good price to the sons of Hamor. The rejected one, Joseph, becomes the deliverer. When the 400 years of slavery were nearly up, the time God promised Abraham for deliverance, the population of our people in Egypt had become very large. And there was now a king over Egypt that had never heard of Joseph. He exploited our race mercilessly. He went so far as forcing us to abandon our newborn infants, exposing them to the elements to die a cruel death. In just such a time, Moses was born, a most beautiful baby. He was hidden at home for three months. When he could be hidden no longer, he was put outside and immediately rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, who mothered him as her own son. Moses was educated in the best schools in Egypt. He was equally impressive as a thinker and an athlete. So we see God raise another deliverer. And again, no temple, no holy place, no law, and no Moses, because this is Moses. When he was 40 years old, he wondered how everything was going with his Hebrew kin and went out to look things over. He saw an Egyptian abusing one of them and stepped in, avenging his underdog brother by knocking the Egyptian flat. He thought his brothers would be glad that he was on their side and even see him as an instrument of God to deliver them. But they didn't see it that way. 
The next day, two of them were fighting, and he tried to break it up, told them to shake hands and get along with each other. Friends, you are brothers. Why are you beating up on each other? The one who had started the fight said, who put you in charge of us? Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard that, realizing that the word was out, he ran for his life and lived in exile over in Midian. During the years of exile, two sons were born to him. So once again, people don't recognize their deliverer. Forty years later, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to him in the guise of flames of a burning bush. Moses, not believing his eyes, went up to take a closer look. He heard God's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Frightened, nearly out of his skin, Moses shut his eyes and turned away. God said, kneel and pray. You are in a holy place, on holy ground. I've seen the agony of my people. I've heard their groans, and I've come to help them. So get yourself ready. I am sending you back to Egypt. Okay, so at this point, I think they're starting to understand what he, they're picking up what he's laying down here a little bit. Okay, God doesn't care about your temple. He appeared in a freaking burning bush and established it as holy ground. If God is willing to imbue his presence and spirit in a bush, then how dare you give yourself some special privilege in establishing a temple and saying God can only exist in this place. At this point, it's starting to get offensive. So I want you to feel the energy in the room kind of start to, this is like, I don't have a good example for this. The energy in the room is starting to to rise. This is the same Moses whom they earlier rejected saying, who put you in charge of us? So Stephen's starting to connect the dots for them a little bit here. This is the Moses that God, using the angel flaming in the burning bush, sent back as a ruler and a redeemer. He led them out of their slavery. He did wonderful things, setting up God signs all throughout Egypt, down at the Red Sea, and out in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to his congregation, God will raise a prophet just like me from your descendants. This is the Moses who stood between the angel speaking at Sinai and your fathers assembled in the wilderness and took the life-giving words given to him and handed them over to us, words our fathers would have nothing to do with. So now the people reject the law from Moses himself, the thing that they derive their power from. They craved the old Egyptian ways, whining to Aaron, Make us gods that we can see and follow. This Moses who got us out here miles from nowhere, no one knows what's happened to him. That was the time that they made their calf idol, brought sacrifices to it, and congratulated each other on the wonderful religious program that they had put together. I love the way this is translated. God wasn't pleased at all, but he let them do it their own way. Worship every new god that came down the pike and lived with the consequences Consequences described by the prophet Amos. So now Stephen's strutting some pretty good knowledge of history here as he starts to quote pieces of, of history. Did you bring me offerings of animals and grains these, those 40 wilderness years, O Israel? Hardly. You were too busy building shrines to war gods and sex goddesses, worshiping, worshiping them with all your might. And that's why I put you in exile in Babylon. So Moses delivers the people and is still rejected multiple times here. They're continuing to get riled up as he recounts their history to them through a very, very different lens. All right, go back to Stephen. I told you it was long. And all this time, our ancestors had a tent shrine for true worship made to the exact specifications God provided Moses. They had it with them as they followed Joshua. 
when God cleared the land of pagans and still had, a, had it right down to the time of David. David asked God for a permanent place to worship, but Solomon built it. Yet that doesn't mean that the Most High God lives in a building made by carpenters and masons. The prophet Isaiah put it well when he wrote, Heaven is my throne room. I rest my feet on the earth. So what kind of house will you build me, says God? Where can I go away to and relax? It's already built, and I built it. Okay, so Stephen recognizes that his time is about up. It's probably, they're probably starting to talk to each other. It's getting a little fidgety in the room. It's starting to, the, the temperature level's starting to rise. And so he turns the death ray of truth directly on them, and he stops speaking in terms of historical context, and he absolutely slays these four sacred cows that he's being accused of. And what you see here is he kind of says, how dare you accuse me of blasphemy? Your forefathers, your history, your temple, the story that underpins your entire status in and of itself is a blaspheme to God. So here we see Stephen. He goes in for the kill. And you continue so bullheaded, calluses on your hearts, flaps on your ears, deliberately ignoring the Holy Spirit. You're just like your ancestors. Was there ever a prophet who didn't get the same treatment? Your ancestors killed anyone who dared talk about the coming of the just one. And you, you've kept up the family tradition. Traitors and murderers, all of you. Woo! You had God's law handed to you by the angels, gift-wrapped, and you squandered it. And they could not take it anymore. We gave you an opportunity to defend yourself. And look what you're doing. At that point, they went wild. A rioting mob of catcalls and whistles and invective. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, hardly noticed. He only had eyes for God, whom he saw in all his glory with Jesus standing at his side. He said, oh, I see heaven wide open and the Son of Man standing at God's side. Yelling and hissing, the mob drowned him out. Now, in full stampede, they dragged him out of town and pelted him with rocks. The ringleaders took off their coats and asked a young man named Saul to watch them. And as the rocks rained down, Stephen prayed, Master, Jesus, take my life. Then he knelt down praying loud enough for everyone to hear, Master, don't blame them for this sin. His last words. And then he died. This last little portion is packed, and that's why we often skip everything that came before it, because there's so much in here. Stephen loses his life in this moment. We see Saul introduced, who would eventually become the Apostle Paul, and write half of the New Testament. We also get this vision from Stephen that is very odd, and it leaves me wondering, it leaves me wondering a little bit, what did Stephen actually see? So as a way of exploring this, I want to talk a little bit about perception and reality. And one of my favorite authors is Dan Ariely. So if you like behavioral economics, you might be familiar with him. And one of his books is called Predictably Irrational, The Hidden Forces That Shape Our Decisions. And in the book, he challenges our assumptions that we make decisions based on rational thought. I think a lot of us think that our decisions make sense. And what he explores in this is that oftentimes they make no sense at all. So uh, we're going to play a clip as he, as he kind of teases out a couple of ideas from the book. 
I want to tell you a little bit about irrational behavior, and I want to start by giving you some examples of visual illusion as a metaphor for rationality. So think about these two tables, and you must have seen this illusion. If I ask you what's longer, the vertical line on the table on the left, or the horizontal line on the table on the right, which one seems longer? Can anybody see anything but the left one being longer? No, right, it's impossible. Uh, but the nice thing about visual illusion is we can easily demonstrate mistakes. So I can put some lines on, doesn't help. I can animate the lines, and to the extent you believe me, I didn't shrink the lines, which I didn't, I've proven to you that your eyes were deceiving you. Now, the interesting thing about this is when I take the lines away, it's as if you haven't learned anything in the last minute. You can't, <laughs> you can't look at this and say, okay, now I see reality as it is, right? It's impossible to overcome this sense that this is indeed longer. Our intuition is really fooling us in a repeatable, predictable, consistent way. There's almost nothing we can do about it aside from taking a ruler and starting to measure it. Here's another one, this is one of my favorite illusion. What do you see the color that the top arrow is pointing to? Brown, the brown thank you. The bottom one, yellow. yellow. Turns out they're identical. Can anybody see them as identical? Very, very hard. I can cover the rest of the cube up, and if I cover the rest of the cube, you can see that they're identical. And if you don't believe me, you can get the slide later and do some arts and crafts and see that they're identical. <laughs> But again, it's the same story, that if we take the background away, the illusion comes back, right? There's no way for us not to see this illusion. I guess maybe if you're colorblind, I don't think you can see that. I want you to think about illusion as a metaphor. You know, vision is one of the best thing we do. We I love this kind of stuff. So Ariely goes on to expand these simple visual illusions, and you'll see it kind of played out, and even with them side by side. I actually did my own Photoshop on these yesterday, <laughs> so I know that the cubes are the same color. And even with them side by side, you can't parse it out. So he goes on to expand these simple visual illusions as a metaphor for cognitive illusions. Vision is one of our strongest abilities. Vision is a really cool part of how we're made. And if we're not able to see correctly, what hope do we have of thinking correctly? The Sanhedrin in our scripture this week have a perception, a cognitive illusion of their own story, one of national pride, of moral superiority, of legal authority and power. And in many ways, similar to these visual illusions, they can only see it the one way. Stephen presents a very different story, one where the illusion is lifted and reality is clarified. And the difference between the truth and the illusion is so powerful that he loses his life. Joan Didion had this to say about our ability to create this kind of narrative fallacy. We look for the sermon in the suicide, for the social or moral lesson in the murder of five. We interpret what we see, select the most workable of the multiple choices, and we live entirely by the imposition of a narrative line upon disparate images, by the ideas with which we have learned to freeze the shifting phantasmagoria, which is our actual experience. The Sanhedrin created a narrative line that positioned them as the heroes of their own story. But there was blood all over the floor, and they missed it. I'd be angry too. Meanwhile, we see multiple mentions 
of Stephen's demeanor throughout the entire ordeal, including the sacrifice of his own life. It says he is brimming with the Holy Spirit, and he is unflappable. How is this possible? I want some of that. So with this, I want to come back to this odd moment in the story. At the crescendo of his message, as he's really hitting it hard, Stephen suddenly exclaims, I have seen heaven wide open and the Son of Man standing at God's side. It's a little odd. So what the heck is he seeing? All right, so I'm going to get weird with you guys for a second. Are you ready for this? I think that Stephen sees through a space-time tear into a new reality, and he sees Jesus in the kingdom of heaven. And we have some, ex- we have some examples of these unexplainable events throughout Scripture. Enoch walks with God and evaporates with no death and no explanation. Elijah rides off in a chariot of fire, which is how we should all want to go. Um, We have Jesus walking into rooms without going through the door. And if we stretch our imaginations, I think we can see glimpses of the kingdom of the earth and the kingdom of heaven interacting as though they were different dimensions of the same reality. So in the examples of the visual illusions, the cube and the tables, the illusion is corrected when a tool is introduced, when we put a ruler on it or we we cover up the cube except for those two boxes. These tools correct our perception and allow us to see the truth of what we're looking at. And in a much more meaningful way and powerful way, the Holy Spirit does the same thing for Stephen here. Stephen is living in a radically a radically different story. As we've moved through the Synoptic Gospels prior to our study of Acts um, and and, and past studies, we've talked about the kingdom of heaven as a sort of upside-down kingdom. We've used that terminology. And and I'll add to it maybe maybe a parallel universe. So consider this. Stephen sees Israel's marred, tragic history with crystal clarity. He sees a room of powerful leaders for the misdirected cowards that they actually are. He sees Jesus standing at God's side. As Stephen is condemned in a court of the kingdom of the earth, he is at the same time vindicated in the kingdom of heaven. And he gets to see it all. So if the worship team wants to come up, we'll we'll close down here. One of my favorite chill-inducing lines in The Matrix is when Neo and Morpheus are discussing what it means to be the one. And Neo looks at Morpheus and says, of course, it's Keanu Reeves, right? Are you saying I could dodge bullets? And Morpheus looks back at him and he says, I'm saying that when you are ready, you won't have to. Stephen's story is brimming with power. It's overflowing with power. He has the Holy Spirit And it's enabling him to see a completely different reality. And in Stephen's reality, his life is utterly inconsequential. Lucian put it really well in the teaching document when he said, In light of the promise of Jesus, it's like death has no part in the experience of those redeemed and saved by Jesus. Amen? Amen. 
Even so, even with this, his suffering is not meaningless. We, we so often see that our suffering, and I hope you've had this experience, that our suffering is a doorway to redemption, to transformation and growth. It has a way of reordering our affections and our allegiances. Joseph is banished by his brothers, but becomes their deliverer. Moses is sentenced to death by Egyptians at birth, rejected by his own people, exiled, and still returns as their savior. Jesus dies at the hands of his own people, and he becomes the ultimate deliverer. This week, we see Stephen's suffering is the spark to what is ultimately the inclusion of the Gentiles, the spreading of the church throughout that region, and to Paul's calling as an apostle. It's a doorway. So coming back to our thematic for Acts, what does Acts ask of us? So I hope you'll consider with me Acts asking us these questions. In what ways have you whitewashed your heritage to support your moral superiority? What are you assuming is true about your story, Grace Church? Our imagination shapes our reality. So what is shaping our imagination? And here's what I hope you'll ask me, you'll join me in asking Acts in return. Why is Stephen okay? And how do I see like Stephen sees? Because that's what I want. So now we have an opportunity to respond um, through giving, uh, communion, and worship. And we've been doing a, a little bit of a different, a different approach with communion. So what I would ask is um, there will be people here serving the elements. Come up, grab those elements, and then find a seat close to the front. Don't worry about returning to your, you know, your, your pre-assigned seat. Um, find one here and let's pack in here in the front and hold on to that cracker and, and that juice. And we'll take that together uh, here in a minute, if you would. Waking 